three, two, one, liftoff. We choose to go to the moon. That's one small step for man. Welcome to Anthropod, brought to you by the Society for Cultural Anthropology on colanth.org. I'm your host, Willie Lempert, and this is the first episode in a special three-part podcast series on the anthropologies of outer space. While outer space is a field site far from what some of our listeners will associate with anthropology, we hope you will join us on this journey to better understand what it means to be human beyond the planet on which we have evolved. The intro you just heard was made possible by the recent release of a large NASA sound library reaching back to their earliest missions. You'll be hearing a variety of these rich clips throughout this series, such as the current audio, which consists of radio waves recorded at the edge of the Earth's atmosphere. Engaging deeply with the co-authors of this article, Relational Space and Earthly Installation, in the journal Cultural Anthropology, we seek to connect this work broadly with current events, popular culture, and the NASA Sound Archive. We will discuss topics as varied as cutting hair in space with David Valentine, an orbital handshake between superpowers during the Cold War with Deborah Battaglia, the inner effects of outer space with Valerie Olson, and much, much more. We start off our series this month with an interview I conducted with David Valentine, where we discuss the colonization of Mars, the rise of the new space community organized around commercial space projects supported by billionaires such as Elon Musk, as well as what anthropology can do to ground otherworldly discussions around risk, imagination, and the future. Thank you for joining us on Anthropod, David. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Willie. If you wouldn't mind, please introducing yourself and into the research you've been working on in relation to outer space. Sure. My name is David Valentine. I'm an associate professor of anthropology at the University of Minnesota. And since about 2009, I've been conducting research on people who wish to colonize outer space. What do anthropologists bring to the study of human relationships with outer space? I think anthropology brings a number of things to this conversation. First of all, given that there is a a one-to-one correspondence between human and Earth, in other words, we evolved on this planet, and this is the planet in which we have conducted all of our human history. Going to space or thinking about going to space requires us to think about what that transformation would mean. In other words, if you take away the conditions of the planet in which the human has evolved, What do the conditions of space, the multiple conditions of space, offer for thinking about the reconstruction of human worlds in outer space, whether it's on Mars, in the asteroid belt, in a a rotating free space colony, um, on, on the moon, or even beyond our own solar system? So I think there are key anthropological insights, not only to be gained from thinking humans away from the planet of their origin, but also for thinking through multiplicity and difference in the multiple places of outer space. Well said, and and I also like what you pointed out, that not only is it about outer space, but it gives us perhaps a a new point of view to look back at the Earth, much like Carl Sagan's Pale Blue Dot, and perhaps see the Earth for the first time in a new way. Yes, one of the features of the space age is to understand that Earth is a unique and singular planet. And uh, this indeed underpins a good deal of the environmental consciousness that arose courtesy of many NASA images in the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, One of the striking things that I always find about those narratives about going to space to find Earth 
is that while it's true, it has drawn public attention to the a relational Earth uh, essay for cultural anthropology, was to think about how thinking of Earth from space is not simply a way of revisioning Earth as unique, but as Earth as one point of difference. In other words, how we might think of Earth in a renewed way that isn't simply in terms of itself, but is in terms of otherness and difference that might result from humans being in different parts of the cosmos. Of course, as we know, you know, since Durkheim, we've understood that human cosmologies incorporate the whole universe. Um, so there's nothing in some ways unique about the, the project that New Space you know, astronomers or scientists who are finding exoplanets are engaged in. This is a fairly common human activity. What's different, of course, is the attempt to not only conceive of those places as places that humans can uh, can go, but then the way in which that meshes with the plans that new space companies are making to actually make that a reality. You bring up the cultural anthropology article. Uh, mm-hmm. I wonder if you might summarize the basic <clears throat> argument in that a cultural anthropology article, which brings together you and Deborah and Valerie's work, and the collaborative nature of doing this type mm-hmm. of research. Sure. One of the reasons that Valerie and Deborah and I have uh, worked together in three different settings, actually, I think there are a couple of reasons. One, we have a great fellow feeling for one another's work and for the kinds of insights we're getting from our uh, our different research sites. But second, there are relatively few anthropologists who are doing work on questions of outer space. As to the uh, essay itself, I'd say the fundamental argument in relational space is our attempt to have anthropologists and other critical scholars and indeed a broader public, think about space as something which isn't just one place or a kind of open and empty entity uh, beyond Earth's atmosphere, but that is characterized by multiplicity itself. And that if we think about the possibility of humans entering space, as indeed uh, humans have, especially uh, from North America and Europe, what possibilities might there be for different kinds of difference, difference that isn't formed within the conditions of, of Earth's biosphere? So the emphasis on relationality, it draws on anthropology's long interest and concern with uh, relations of all kinds, whether they be kin relations, gender relations, or whatever else, exchange relations, and thinking about space as a possibility, not simply for their, the extension of those relations, but for their transformation. That is really well said, thanks. And it reminds me of a discussion we had about the relationship between your previous work on transgender identities and outer space for some of the reasons that you just outlined. When people ask me about the change in topic from my earlier work on transgender to the work on outer space, they're puzzled, obviously, by the radically different nature of the topic. However, in both projects, I'm really guided by an ongoing interest and I would say even fascination with the way in which language and narrative is deeply connected to the ways in which we uh, conceive of and materialize futures. With transgender activists, the emergence of the category transgender in the early 1990s was one way to transform the relationship of multiply gender variant people in relationship to one another. That interest in the role of narrative in formulating future worlds was really what I, I was trying to follow as I completed my book 
And um, as that was in, in the early 2000s, uh, that was the time when the commercial space industry was really coming to the fore and kind of reanimating these 1970s visions of space settlements. And in fact, that really was a movement which had been steadily plodding along through the 80s and the 90s. Um, and then in the 2000s, came up against the possibility of a capital from internet billionaires like Elon Musk, Paul Allen, Jeff Bezos, people like that, but also transformations in material sciences and in orientations toward the future. The link between narrative and futurity was the bridge between my first project and my and my second project. And that, for me anyway, <laughs> makes sense of this, uh, of this somewhat radical transition in uh, topic. Thanks for that. I think when you explain it, it, it makes a lot of sense. My interest in outer space settlement really came from a couple of directions. One was what I was talking about a little earlier, my interest in the relationship between narrative and the future. But I was also interested in other themes that are, had arisen from my earlier work, in particular, how difference is managed. In other words, um, how the, the kinds of difference that race or class or national origin might make to somebody's identification as transgender or not. In relationship to the work on space, obviously one of the very first things anybody is struck by looking at the claims of uh, SpaceX or Blue Origin or Virgin Galactic and so on who are making claims on outer space as a future site for human settlement and community. One is struck immediately by metaphors of colonialism and settlement, and in particular settlement of the North American continent. If we think about outer space as a frontier, which is, you know, everything from, from Star Trek to Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk talk about space as a frontier. For those of us who are concerned about history and politics, we do think about the Western frontier and about the appropriation of indigenous lands, of uh, genocide of of native people and so on. But like I've argued for the different kinds of relations that result from um, a move to space without Earth's formative conditions, one of the things that I that my data points me toward is thinking about how can we think about space not simply through Earth's histories, bearing them in mind, carrying their weight and their lesson with us as a significant guidepost, analytical and ethical, but also can we think about what humanness and space might be like in ways that don't simply reproduce Earth's histories. I say this not to, again, make those histories invisible, but to think about how they may play out differently in somewhere like the Moon or Mars. And let's take Mars for a moment as an example. Uh, many of your listeners may know of established plans to put people on Mars, including Mars One or Explore Mars or uh, even NASA's own plans to send a human mission to Mars in the 2030s. But those aren't the only plans for uh, thinking about Mars. There are claims about Mars and how Mars might be included in not only human cosmologies, but human plans for exploration that come from indigenous and African-American sources, uh, not simply as uh, continuations of uh, white settlement narratives. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Tranquility. We copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. The new space community is one that is characterized primarily by an American membership. Most of the people in the conferences that I go to are older white men, men above the age of 50. In other words, men like myself, 
people who can remember the Apollo moon landings. And indeed, Apollo is a key inspiration for this community. Um, however, it's, it is also a diverse community, even though old white American men may be the largest demographic, the community is diverse along lines of age, race, gender, and even national identity. And what would you say, more than anything, inspires this community of people interested in commercial outer space projects who describe themselves as new spacers? I'd say that the Apollo moon landings in the 1960s and early 1970s are really key. But what really inspires them is not so much that precedent, but the idea that that precedent points toward the possibility of a longer-term human settlement in outer space. The Apollo moon landings were incredible technological achievements, but they also were very brief visits that were very expensive and were underpinned by taxpayer money. My informants really believe that the future of humans in space is underpinned by a commercial rationale. In other words, there should be a profit motive, and they believe that it shouldn't just be for the purposes of visiting outer space, but for settling it. It's precisely, of course, that word settlement or colonization, which gives a lot of people pause around the question of human entry into space. This is also a concern that I share and continue to share as I do this research. But one of the things that we really need to bear in mind in regard to outer space is that things can't happen the same way as on Earth, that the settlement of North America or European colonialism of the globe happened in the context of Earth's forgiving nature, in other words, its ability to absorb the excess of those movements, by which I mean the ability of European settlers in, in North America or Africa or, or Asia or wherever it might be, to be guaranteed things like air, water, the ability of, uh, for the biosphere to regenerate resources and so on. None of those things are available in outer space. And that transforms really not only the conditions for the possibilities of settlement, but also what can be made of it. So my interest in the new space movement is in part the way in which it generates an obvious critical stance in relationship to historical colonialism on Earth. But it also opens the possibility for thinking through what do people do or what can they do in conditions that in no way resemble Earth, where everything has to be made anew and where the distinctions between nature, culture, politics, economy, exchange, all have to be created. I keep an ongoing list of things that I, uh, that, uh, I hear about in my fieldwork that uh, new space folk talk about. This includes everything from jam and haircuts to Sunday afternoons and exchange and politics and uh, gravity and trees and rain. And haircuts is one of my favorites. In an enclosed life support system, a haircut is a kind of slice into thinking about the kinds of problems that would be faced in outer space. Not only do you have to think about labor, i.e. who's going to cut hair, not only do you have to think about space, where are they going to cut hair, but you also have to think about the hair itself. Whose hair will it be? In other words, what kinds of hair are you going to be talking about? What is the, the makeup of the crew? And when that hair gets cut, where does it go? Hair is one of the key exit points from the body of heavy metals. So for hair to be concentrated in any one place, in any one workplace, uh, where it is being cut off a human head, it also then needs to re-enter an uh, enclosed life support system. And you can't simply just 
throw hair away into an ecology and expect it to be absorbed. You have to plan for and think about what happens to that nickel and other heavy metal bearing waste product from the human body. So I like that example because it gets us to think about politics and race and it gets us to think about labor, but it also gets us to think about ecology and environment and waste and management. And it gets us to see how in an enclosed life support system, whether it's as small as a spaceship or as large as a colony on Mars, we can't simply expect nature to absorb the excess of human activity. And that includes not just hair, but also history itself. The thing I am most interested in, in the work that I do, is that for my informants, they have to make a claim to what world is that includes everything from haircuts and gravity and Sunday afternoon to questions about what what the human is. And it's the fact that all of these things need to be connected to one another, that there is no absorbing externality that we rely on on Earth uh, that we call, quote, nature, that provokes my informants toward uh, an extremely broad definition of world. And that, for an anthropologist, is a profoundly interesting thing. I imagine some in the audience, when they think of outer space, if they loosely follow the new spacers. One thing that stands out, at least to me in the news, is the Virgin Galactic accident. I wonder mm-hmm. if you have any brief thoughts on the role of the perception of risk mm-hmm. in these ventures from the point mm-hmm. of view of them being profitable or even mm-hmm. going ahead and from the point of view of how the public imagines them in relationship to you know, airplanes and cars. Mm-hmm. The Virgin Galactic accident is interesting in many different ways, and it certainly is one of the ways into thinking about risk and what is thought about as risk and how risk is managed and engaged in the new space community. On the one hand, one of the things that many of my informants will say is that space is risky. It's inherently risky precisely because of the absence of any um, uh, absorbing natural conditions upon which humans rely. And so you do have to account for everything that you need to take with you. That risk is obviously technological, which is very obvious in the Virgin Galactic uh, accident in October of 2014. The fact that the co-pilot could pull the wrong lever at the wrong moment uh, indicates the levels of tolerance for failure or for uh, for error is uh, really slim. So there are technological risks which obviously result in risk to human life or lives. That resonates obviously with questions of capital risk and the risk that is faced by investors putting money into these companies, um, which until very recently was quite a small amount of money. Most of the money that's gone into new space in the last 10 to 15 years has mostly been from so-called angel investors. In other words, individual high net worth people who have the same vision as new space companies and their founders. It's really only in the recent year or two that larger venture capital companies have put money into these organizations. And that, I think, is in part based on the fact that venture capitalists are increasingly seeing new space entities as being less risky in terms of the income that can be generated. Here, I think it's important to distinguish between what new space companies are doing now, companies like Blue Origin, SpaceX, Virgin Galactic, uh, X-Core, and others, and their longer-term visions. The more recent activities, the more kind of near-term activities that they're engaged in are very much scaled to what we've come to expect about human engagements with space. 
so low Earth orbit, um, suborbital flight, research in low Earth orbit, that kind of thing, delivering astronauts to the International Space Station. But for the people that I work with, these are seen as very small stepping stones toward the longer term vision of outer space settlement. And that's really what they, um, they are after. Risk is always talked about at new space conferences. Very often in the context of the claim from NASA that failure is not an option. In other words, space is seen to be so dangerous, so fraught with risk that we have to build all kinds of redundancies into space systems to ensure that people don't die. And of course, people do die in space. Um, most recently in the Columbia uh, accident, before that in Challenger, the Apollo 1 accident and so on. The question of risk, though, when it, um, and here I'm, kind of, I'm trying to bring the question of capital risk back in relationship to technological and um, personal risk, um, in other words, risk of death. Um, for many of my informants, they have a somewhat utilitarian attitude toward risk. They recognize that space, because space is dangerous, people will die, that there will be deaths, and there will also therefore be losses, capital losses. But what is the ideological attitude toward risk in this community is primarily is that that risk is worthwhile, not because of future return on investment and not because of a desire to go to space, but because of what they see as the species imperative to occupy different places in the cosmos. And here we get to the real mind-bending ideology that underpins uh, new space, I think, is, and this is the argument I make in Exit Strategy, that yes, they're excellent capitalists, yes, they want to make money, um, but really they undertake this, and I would say this is true to a person, for the, for the people with whom I've worked, they undertake this commitment to move humans to space, not primarily because of a desire to make money, but because they see it as a species imperative to save humans and to save Earth. And that is a, you know, a massive, utopian, sweeping, grand vision. And um, it's one that I take at face value. I didn't when I first started my research because you know I was very much wedded to the idea that appropriation and um, profit were the key motivators. But what my data show is that that is consistently the ultimate reason given for going to space, that it's about saving humans, saving our biosphere, saving the species upon which we depend, and extending human and terrestrial communities into the cosmos. I mean, I think that frames a lot of the whole purpose of this podcast and where I think people are interested in when they see Elon Musk on late, late, <laughs> uh, late night television. Musk is very interesting. Everyone in this community calls him Elon. And there is something, it may be in part because of how uh, particular that name is, but um, I've come to think of him as Elon Christ, as having this kind of almost messianic quality to him that we call him by his first name because everybody does. We refer to him, we refer to him as Elon rather than uh, as Musk. One of the arguments I find myself having most frequently with other anthropologists is a refusal on their part to believe somebody like Elon Musk that the purpose of that what he's doing is not to make a hell of a lot of money, but rather to fulfill this species ambition or indeed destiny. And for many anthropologists who I've talked to about my project, that feels like an excuse, a kind of a mask for real intention. 
But I think that it's dangerous to think that way. Elon Musk is an excellent capitalist, as are Richard Branson, Jeff Bezos, and so on. Um, and they undoubtedly imagine and hope to make huge amounts of money by going to space. But to a person, I would say the new space community are prompted in their work by a cosmological vision and that that is prior in their thinking. Profit and free market liberalism are seen as the necessary and natural way forward to producing that. But the impetus is fundamentally a cosmological one. And I think without understanding that, uh, we can't really understand the new space movement. One of the things that sticks out to me about Elon Musk is he was on Colbert and he was talking about the fast and slow way to terraform Mars and that the fast Mm -hmm. way was nuking it. Mm -hmm. Stephen Colbert sort of made an offhanded joke about him being a supervillain, like um, Mm -hmm. Osmandes in Watchmen or or that kind Mm -hmm. of thing. But he he was sort of not joking that there's this odd passion and possession and incredible power that these folks have at this mm-hmm. on this frontier where they mm-hmm. might have the say over whole worlds. Yes. Um, outer space creates the the stage for narratives like that to even be joked about in a way that they wouldn't be on Earth. Yes, absolutely. I agree hundred percent. I think that one of you know one of the things that I always need to underpin um, the claim that the new space vision is cosmological, not merely profit-driven, um, is the recognition that that doesn't mean I'm simply on board with this or that we have a kind of utopian promise of the saving of Earth and the transformation of the human species um, because we've heard that promise all too often and it hasn't worked out too well. It's not that I think that uh, the visions of someone like Elon Musk are necessarily benign or that the outcome will be necessarily benign. Really bad things could happen in space um, and probably will. My point is that they will happen differently than on Earth and that in order to be able to bring the appropriate critical attention to thinking about what could happen in a deeper human engagement with outer space, we need to think about what those conditions are and the ways in which they can shape the possibilities for human freedoms, for human activity, for what we call on Earth democracy, in order to think about how they might unfold, what the consequences of them are, both for human communities on Earth and off, but that we should take it seriously as a possibility precisely because of the, quote, supervillain-like impact of someone like Elon Musk. It shouldn't be underestimated. And again, not simply because I think that A, he is a supervillain, or B, that I think he will live up to the messianic promise of his first name, but because we need to take these things seriously because A, people are building rockets, B, they intend to go to Mars and other places in space, and because also we need to be part of the conversation that opens up questions about the possibilities of that future. I think an anthropological perspective is absolutely crucial at this kind of beginning point of thinking about a permanent presence for humans off the planet on which we evolved. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, all three engines up and burning, 2, 1, Zero and liftoff, the final liftoff of Atlantis on the shoulders of the space shuttle. America will continue the dream. There's something very iconic about countdown and mm-hmm. liftoff. 
If you have any thoughts about the role of that in your work. Yeah, the, the countdown to a launch is iconic. We use it in all kinds of contexts. And uh, it's, I think the other thing about it is ca- you, you count down from some infinite number to zero, right? It's that zero point at which uh, ignition uh, happens and then, you know, the rocket goes off. And of course, it's, that is such a, a crucial moment because it's at that moment when the, the launch can be scrubbed or, you know, or it's on its way. And once it's on its way, there's nothing you can do about it because you're subject to the laws of chemistry and physics. And if there is an error, it will be disastrous and spectacular. So there is something about that zero point moment of ignition, which I think uh, is you know, kind of a useful metaphor for us in thinking about space, because I think in a way humans have been engaging with outer space since since the 1950s. And since 1961, there has been more or less some kind of human presence in space. But I think in 2016, we're at the point where people are actively and seriously talking about larger scale and more permanent human presence off Earth. And for some people, this is still science fiction. But, you know, all over the country and all over the world, there are people building rockets and habitats toward that end. So we're kind of at that zero point, if not right there. There is this sense, certainly in the media and in public discourse, that now is the time to be having these kinds of conversations about what it means to have humans enter space and um, potentially not come back. I thought it was interesting NASA included a a whole bank of space shuttle mission sounds, but Mm. they were mostly from the final Atlantis Atlantis. Mm -hmm. um, which to me seems interesting. It relates to risk, you know, in terms of that's partly why they retire them. But it also seems to be the transition from the John F. Kennedy vision. We choose to go to the moon. To Mm -hmm. something more, at least international, if not entrepreneurial. Mm Mm-hmm. The reaction to the final shuttle mission, the Atlantis mission, was very interesting for me to to observe. It was right in the middle of my uh, my research, but in the media, all the imagery about the Atlantis shuttle was that somehow something had come to an end. Nose gear touchdown. Having fired the imagination of a generation, a ship like no other, its place in history secured, the space shuttle pulls into port for the last time. Its voyage at an end. Mission complete, Houston. After uh, serving the world for over 30 years, the space shuttle turned its place in history and has come to a final stop. For a good deal of the American population uh, who don't really keep track of space, uh, there was a sense that the U.S. presence in outer space was coming to an end. It performed this kind of, it certainly for my informants, performed this kind of metaphorical uh, role of transition from uh, NASA government-led space exploration to uh, hoped for on their part, uh, commercial future in outer space. Uh, this, uh, of course, obscures the obvious and the very important fact that NASA is key to the business plans of uh, many new space companies, including SpaceX, which really depends on NASA contracts to send cargo to the space station, as well as uh, uh, from next year onward to send uh, humans to the International Space Station. So NASA is still very much there, but there's a sense even within NASA and certainly within companies that have been competitors or are competitors with SpaceX, 
that what SpaceX is doing, especially in terms of its budget model, its development cycle, but also its approach to technology development and its development of reusable tech, uh, rocket technology, that there is a transition, that there is some moment of change. So that Atlantis, that the sound of the Atlantis launch and landing are uh, very compelling because it does mark this kind of key moment where something is changing, how it's changing, and you know what has changed is again an open question, and that's the open question that I think anthropology and anthropologists can um, insert themselves into. But I do think that that moment is a, a moment of transition that we should be um, thinking about and taking seriously. Something I really am interested to know is if you had to put your money on what you think will or may happen. Um, do you have any insight being around this group of people that mm-hmm. very few people would have? You know, deep sense of yeah. what what they envision, what is likely, what what might go mm-hmm. wrong in the deeper right. future. Right. So I'll say, in terms of predictions of the future, I'll say a couple of things. One, I'm not prepared to make any. Yeah. Um, and um, but two, I'm not prepared to because most of my informants aren't prepared to either. And I find this uh, very interesting. Clearly, given the cosmological vision of a future of humans in outer space, they imagine some deep future in which it's rather ordinary to have uh, humans living off Earth. But the path to that, um, other than the mechanism of free enterprise, is really not something that people are willing to map out very carefully or explicitly. I think precisely because of the kind of long history of failure in modernity of futurist predictions. One of the most striking things in the formal interviews that I do with uh, new space community members um, is that I ask people explicitly to, to do this, to predict into the future, and I ask them to choose whatever time frame they want to. The largest number of people will choose 20 years into the future when they will predict, for example, that you know SpaceX uh, may do such and such, or that uh, uh, point-to-point transportation Uh, In other words, going from somewhere like New York to Tokyo might take place in two hours through the kinds of technologies that Virgin Galactic is uh, producing. But as soon as it gets further out than that, um, people are generally unwilling to speculate. And the upper limit with uh, I've done 51 formal interviews uh, with one exception, the upper limit of the future time frame that people are willing to make any kind of prediction within is 100 years. And I think in part that's because uh, 100 years maps onto what we can imagine about a human lifespan in the modern West. So my own reticence in making that prediction, I think, is quite interesting because I think my reticence comes from a a similar place. However, I think that there is something very interesting about the... um, Jane Geyer actually talks about this in her wonderful piece that she published a couple of years ago um, about what she calls the evacuation of the near future in both finance capital and in U.S. Protestantism. Um, and her argument is that ideologically in the U.S., the near future has been has been evacuated because of this deep commitment to a long-term future, which will just generally sort itself out. Right? That you know, if you do, if you put the right things in place, whether it is um, uh, submitting yourself before God or submitting yourself to the uh, the whims of the market, um, things will just work out. And so we shouldn't plan for the near-term future. In other words, we shouldn't. Uh, you know, meddle with the economy, and we should obey God's law. The, this is the connection she makes between those two domains. Um, and so I think there's something about actually operating in this field. There is a, an evacuation of that near-term future. So I, I think in short, 
one could make predictions about, you know, I'm, I'm fairly sure SpaceX will end up taking astronauts to the International Space Station because they have a contract to do so. Um, I'm fairly sure that Bigelow will end up taking its inflatable capsule to the International Space Station next year because, again, it has a contract to do so. But uh, I'm not going to lay any money on Elon Musk actually retiring on Mars, as he says that he wants to, or the construction of the kinds of massive, large-scale space settlements that was imagined by Gerard O'Neill back in the 1970s and that actually form the inspiration for a lot of the space settlement, new space movement. I think what's interesting for us anthropologically is precisely the gap between now and that long term. That's something that I really want to explore in my writing and thinking about uh, how these temporal gaps in particular are managed in narrative and uh, in um, claims about these cosmological visions. I'm not sure that that's much of an answer, though. No, I, I love that answer. Um, okay. I, I think that the sort of upper and lower limit, there's a, that there's this window um, mm-hmm. of what people like to imagine that's right. uh, almost the opposite of the uncanny valley. That's just... Yes, yeah, it is, actually. That's that's a really nice way to put it. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> it just it strikes me as it, it's not unimaginable, but it the few the close future is also unimaginable in terms of mm-hmm. how you're going to pass a bill in Congress even or get money. Yeah, one of the things I'm very interested in is the management of future time through either analogy, which attempts to make sense of a deep future in terms of a deep past but also in terms of punctuated time, the idea that particular moments, such as the final shuttle uh, mission, the first man on the moon, the, you know, these punctuating inflection points in time necessarily move us toward that longer term future. But to reach for that future, it's hard to talk about an actual space colony on Mars. That longer term future needs to be thought about or is thought about in terms of analogy. Right, historical analogy. So there is a kind of resonance between punctuated time and durational time. And it's kind of in the intersection between those that these accounts of human space futures unfold. And I'm, I'm curious in working out what that relationship is between these different kinds of time. What the audience just heard were the high-altitude student platform sounds, otherwise known as the HASP sounds, through the University of North Chapel Hill, where they placed microphones 22 miles above the Earth to listen to sub-audible sounds in the stratosphere. It is unknown what the origin of these sounds is, and considering your interest in atmosphere, can you speak to the significance of this project? What's interesting about the HASP sounds is that they've been sped up to bring the signals into audible range. And... Um, one of the ways in which we grasp for outer space is to make sense of it in terms of phenomena and sensations that we can experience on the surface of Earth. So whether going to Lisa Masseri's work, it's making sense of Mars in terms of Earth deserts, or whether it's speeding up these infrasounds, translating that into or or speeding it up so that we can hear it, or whether it's uh, discussions of what outer space might smell like, right, which there was some discussion of in the media last year sometime. Um, this attempt to, to translate, as Deborah Battaglia would say, what happens in space through 
sensations and experiences that we can have on the surface of Earth in Earth's conditions is, for me, really interesting, not for what those sensations or experiences are, but for how it is we need to mediate them through an earthly nature in order to make sense of them. Lisa Masseri has done some very interesting work on how humans make sense of space or different parts of space as different kinds of places, places that they can imagine themselves being. For example, in her work on Mars analog sites on Earth, for example, places in the Antarctic or the Utah desert, she looks at how scientists work with the notion of metaphor and analog to make sense of what's on Mars by making sense of what's on Earth. And that attempt at placemaking really alerts us again to anthropology's role in thinking about outer space, not simply as a utopian site, but as a series of places that we can make sense of. Um, so Lisa's work is really important for us in thinking about that process of placemaking. And so my interest in atmosphere as a boundary is precisely that it makes us look and hear and smell and touch in different kinds of ways. What I love about sitting in a group of um, space advocates, people who desperately want to go to space, is to watch as you see them trying to imagine themselves in zero gravity or subject to artificial gravity or smelling or seeing or feeling something that couldn't, that has no precedent. Right, that can't be explained in terms of some sensation that is already known, that is not déjà vu, but jamais vu, never seen, right, never felt before. And it's that reaching for that kind of ineffability, which I think is, uh, uh, you know, underpins a good deal of the fascination with outer space. You know, we've all been on a roller coaster or an elevator where we've felt that sudden weightlessness, just even for a moment. I think for many of my informants, that promise of something which is radically new and radically different is what draws them personally to go to space beyond this kind of species imperative cosmology which underpins their activities. But I, I think that's also something for us to think about as anthropologists. What thinking through the HASP sounds can enable us to think about newness, not newness as a way of ignoring what happened on Earth or eliding Earth histories, but of looking at it from a different point of view, looking at it from a point of view we may not have looked at it from before, and how that may how that may shift it into a different kind of frame that isn't only explained by earthly conditions or the kinds of uh, metaphors that we rely on in social theory that um, are rooted in our experience on Earth. I love that you mentioned the smells of space and, and those kind of things and the sort of new eco and biological subjectivities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that that become possible in, in yeah. unimaginable ways, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it is that, you know, the reaching out to the unimaginable, which I think is so provocative, both for my informants and for anthropology. One of the things I think is fundamental to anthropology is this attempt to translate, right, to make sense of the order and logic and contingencies of radically different kinds of worlds. The challenge of thinking through outer space is that you remove fundamental conditions that all humans share. And so we need to thereby think that surprise in the absence of those conditions. And this is, again, what, why I find this um, so compelling as an anthropologist. Again, not, not simply for, not even not simply for, but uh, not at all for 
some kind of utopian hope, but out of an interest in the kinds of differences that are introduced by outer space and how they may transform what it is we understand by difference itself. I'm Willie Lempert, and thank you for listening to this episode of Anthropod. I want to thank Marios Valeris, our executive producer, the Society for Cultural Anthropology, and NASA for providing their sound archive. Please join us next month as we continue this series with an interview with Deborah Battaglia, who will discuss topics around cosmopolitics. Like finding water on the moon. The SCA is offering a one-year print subscription to cultural anthropology to anyone, whether an individual, a department, or a library, who donates $125 or more to support our open access publishing initiatives. Donors do not need to be members, and the donation will qualify as a tax-deductible charitable contribution. See you next time on Anthropod. And from the crew of Apollo 8, close with good night, good luck, and bless all of you, all of you on the good earth.